Hey everyone, I'm Michael. And I'm Andrew. And you're listening to Endurance Innovation Podcast. Today we're talking all about training and racing in hot conditions. And a couple of notes of warning, um, this discussion uh, devolved into a little bit of a, uh, a nerd extravaganza between Andrew and myself, uh, and so it's a slightly longer, I've been thinking about, um, segment than normal, but uh, there's a lot of good information packed in here, so uh, I hope you guys will stick around for the full duration, because it's at the end that we really give you the, uh, the key takeaways for uh, how to deal with the heat. Um, apologies too for some uh, technical difficulties we had for the first uh, maybe third of the of the episode. My audio sounds a little bit like I am uh, talking to you from the bottom of the sea, but we got that sorted out. Thanks for tuning in, and here we go. So, if you live in the northern hemisphere, um, it does look like summer has finally sh- decided to show up uh, in uh, eastern Canada, or well, sort of eastern Canada. It's going to be a steady four or five days of uh, 20 plus degrees and sunshine, which uh, I speak for myself and all the folks that I, I work with saying that that's, uh, that's a welcome relief after the, uh, the seemingly never ending winter spring combination that we've had for the last couple of months. And all I have to say is it's about time. It's been terrible this spring. And what's really funny about it, and I guess we're kind of used to this in Canada, but it's just like a switch that gets flipped where there were a couple days, probably a couple weeks, uh, where it was 10 to 12 degrees and rainy and kind of miserable. And then one Saturday, and this never happens on weekends, but one Saturday, it was all of a sudden 29 degrees and 70% humidity. And I went out for a bike ride and it was, when I opened the front door, it was like a furnace outside. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I've, uh, I've had to find my sunblock. I went out uh, maybe that same, that same Saturday. And then I came home with, uh, with um, uh, tan lines that the you know the uh, the Illuminati bike guys the, the guys that wrote the rules are very proud of. <laughs> yeah, only if you got the right sock height though. Yeah, no, I actually did have the right sock height, but it was it was it's on my arms. That's where that's where it's it's most noticeable. And then of course, uh, Diana, my wife, gave me a lot of a lot of grief for not putting on the sunscreen, which she, <laughs> she was right to do. Um, so today's topic, as you may have figured out, has something to do with the, the warming temperatures and, uh, specifically Andrew and I, um, wanted to talk to you guys about the effects of, uh, heat, uh, temperature, humidity on your training and racing. And, uh, cute, kind of a, a cute aside is the fact that, um, Andrew and I both studied, uh, heat transfer, which is sort of the, you know, the background topic for this conversation in, uh, in university. I think, Andrew, you went a lot further with it than I did. <laughs> I'm still not done as a matter of fact. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, uh, I actually, I, I have very fond memories as, as nerdy as the sounds of, uh, of heat transfer, um, the, the heat transfer course in engineering, third year engineering, mechanical engineering. Uh, it was, uh, I think, maybe my favorite course, if not definitely top three. Yeah, and it's the same for me. Like once you get your head around the math, um, the actual physics of heat transfer is really well cool, for lack of a better term. <laughs> oh, that's a good engineering I'm joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but uh, so what I think where what makes a good place to start, it would make sense to have to be a good starting point, is um, kind of a way that. Uh, a framework for conceptualizing what's going on in the the problem of a, a cyclist or a runner or any other athlete um, as, as he or she travels through the world, both generating heat and shedding it. So the way that I like to think about it is if you think of a, think of yourself as a bucket um, that can be filled up with this, um, uh, not really a material, but we'll, we'll call it a material for the example's sake, this material called heat. So you have a certain capacity for increasing the amount of heat you have in your body, and that's say, let's say the volume of the bucket. And uh, heat's going to come into the bucket, and heat's going to leave the bucket. And primarily, the way that heat comes in, and Andrew's going to talk much more in detail about this, is by you know you working hard and generating it, and also by absorbing some from the environment. And there are a couple of primary ways that heat's going to leave the bucket. 
So the thing to understand here is, of course, if you've got more coming in than you've got coming out, it's uh, it's not a sustainable situation. So at some point in time, um, you're going to fill the bucket. And in our you know bucket as athlete analogy here, that means that you're going to be pretty much that's that's going to be pretty much a dead stop for you, or at least a, a substantial reduction in your ability to perform useful work. Does that sound about right, Andrew? Yeah, I think that's that's a good analogy. But uh, what's really interesting is it's almost like you've got a smart bucket in some ways where your body actually, it, it says, okay, it's getting full, let's make these holes bigger. And that kind of leads into some of the, the other parts of the conversation. But uh, your body, turns out, is really smart about how it deals with heat. And it uses some neat physics to to really affect that heat transfer. Totally agree. Yeah, we are we are very smart machines. So if we dive in, let's talk about how um, how heat enters our body buckets, Andrew? Yeah, so I think um, most people know that when you exercise, you get warm. That's that's pretty much given. So when you talk about something like a, say, an electric motor, um, you hear terms like it's got an efficiency of, say, 90%. That means you're putting in, for every kilojoule of energy, you're getting back 0.9 kilojoules in mechanical work. So... 90% of the chemical and or well the energy that's going in uh, comes back as work. So with humans, we're only about 20 to 25% efficient, which sounds pretty terrible on the surface. But actually, when you look at other similar heat engines, I'll call them, um, which most people know as car engines, um, they're only about 35% efficient. Um, and the best ones get up to around 40. But uh, that means for every... Um, X amount of of chemical energy that you're putting in, so fuel, you're only getting about 40% back in mechanical work for a car engine. For a human, which um, is, this is pretty impressive, you're putting food in as a fuel, and you're getting about uh, 20 to 25% of that energy back as mechanical work. Um, so that that's on its own, that's impressive. And there's so much chemistry and biology that goes into this. And to be honest, I don't understand it. So I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm not going to talk well, about a lot of that. I, I promise at some point in time, we'll do a, we'll do a metabolism episode because that stuff is fascinating. Excellent. I think in that episode, I'll be the one asking the questions and you can answer. <laughs> Deal. All right. Um, so what this means though, is that the energy has to go somewhere. So you've got all this food energy, this chemical energy that you're putting in. 25% uh, of it comes back as work, but 75% of it comes out as heat. Um, so that means for 300 watts, you're essentially 300 watts of, say, bike output. You're now generating an additional 900 watts, but you're burning 1,200 watts of total uh, uh, metabolic energy for this. But the 900 watts has to go somewhere. And when you think about that number, 900 watts, um, it's for some people, it's a little bit of a stretch to think about heat transfer in terms of wattage. But when you look at a space heater, um, typically there'll be a 1500 watt heater. So on low, it's doing 750 to 900 watts. So a space heater can heat up a small room pretty quickly. Uh, so if you're exercising in a small room, and have all the doors and windows closed, you're going to heat that up quite a bit. So you're actually kicking off quite a bit of heat. And if you have no way of getting this out of your body, it will just continue to build up. And ultimately, you know, your body absorbs the energy. If it can't shed it, it's your bucket's getting full, basically. Uh, and if it overflows, your body shuts down, So, which is not what you want. Um, and that's, that's when you get into the point of heat stroke. So um, heat stroke does happen frequently, um, but it, it's also something that your body is pretty good at pushing away and staving off. Uh, and there's a couple interesting mechanisms, and we've kind of alluded to that before. But um, yeah, like the, the most obvious is sweating. Um, so evaporative cooling so Andrew, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Before um, before uh, before we talk about that, can can you give us some numbers? Um, I know you sent me a document recently uh, where you did some uh, some math on how long it would take to again to continue with our analogy, fill that bucket if we were not shedding any heat. So let's let's use your you know your closed your closed basement, which I know I know most people are very eager to escape right now. But let's say you know you're doing a workout, your trainer workout on a on a stack halcyon, of course, um, inside with no airflow, um, in a warm basement. How quickly do you fill that bucket, Andrew? 
Okay, so let's use um, some putting some numbers here, uh, which coincidentally are very similar to my numbers. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> uh, so an athlete that weighs around 77 kilograms um, and putting out 300 watts, uh, if if they were to get no outside heat transfer, so that means all of the heat, 100% of the heat that you're generating uh, is retained within your body, you would be, um, it would take about 10 minutes for you to overheat. And that's where you get to um, two degrees, like two degrees Celsius above your uh, base core body temperature. So that's 39 and a half degrees Celsius where I consider you to overheat. So 10 minutes, if you're wearing a winter jacket and you're exercising somewhere that you get no heat transfer. So this uh, this analogy, like the, the 10 minutes to overheat, um, it's it provides us a baseline for the rest of the the calculations I'm doing. So um, I want to I'll refer back to this number in, uh, a number of times just to make sure we have this good reference. So this is just assuming all the heat is coming from inside your body. But what about um, everyone knows the feeling of wearing a black shirt or a dark shirt in the sunshine? And I was actually just out in the sun for the last hour or so. Uh, because we're busy packing to, to move out to Alberta now. Um, so beautiful day, but I was getting quite warm in the sun. And that's because of the effect of thermal radiation. So radiation is, it, it travels at the speed of light. It's essentially light or electromagnetic radiation that's, uh, that's causing the heat transfer. Um, and it's, when you have a hot object near you, um, you can feel that. So quite often when you're sitting near a fire, most of the heat transfer is actually radiation instead of convection. Um, but anyway, the, the sun itself will transfer around 150 to 200 watts um, if you're leaned over and in a time trial position on the bike. Um, you can cut that down in half by having a, well, more than half by having a reflective shirt on or like a white shirt. And that's why white feels so much cooler when you're exercising. So, um, we'll come back to this later, but tips for keeping cool, definitely wear light colored clothing, black, which is the color of my tri suit last year, uh, is not a good, <laughs> not a good color <laughs> and you get warm and it's uncomfortable. Uh, so it's, this always comes back to the debate of like you know as uh, as much as uh, white is a is an amazing color for radiative heat transfer. White's not the most flattering color <laughs> in tri suits. I remember the kind of the conversation I had. Uh, the first the first batch of X three kit was mostly white, and people were like, "Yeah, this, this feels great," but I don't like the way that this looks, especially when it gets <laughs> wet, etc. So it's it's always a battle between uh, between uh, physics and fashion. That's right. right? And for me. Well, as an engineer, fashion is almost never, never a consideration. <laughs> uh, so yep. the other thing that's funny about white as a complete aside is that it's, uh, there's this magic property of bike grease that uh, guarantees that if you get within 10 feet of a bike, <laughs> it will get grease smeared on it. So, um, yep. yeah, the, the important thing is, though, the heat transfer, the radiation is a lot lower or it actually reflects it back and you're not absorbing as much heat. So using that 150 to 200 watt number, and we go back to our time to exhaustion, um, if you're now absorbing all of this radiation on top of your uh, the heat you're generating internally, then it's actually going to reduce your time to exhaustion, which means you overheat faster. And it's going to drop it from 10 minutes to around 8 minutes and 15 seconds, give or take, which is about 17% faster. So that gives you some perspective if you're racing at a place like Kona, where the sun is just beating down on you. And actually with Kona, the lava fields are a great example because you're getting radiation from all directions because the sun is heating up all the lava rock and it's bouncing everything back at you. So it's just you're you're basically in a broiler at that point. Um, and having been there last year, which was apparently a good year for conditions, I was miserable the entire time I was in Hawaii. It, it's hot and uncomfortable. And I have so much respect for the people who can do those races. Which goes to the, you know, which goes to our point of how important it is to, um, and as Andrew alluded, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about this, but at, at the end of the episode, but how important it is to actually uh, learn to manage um, heat as best as possible. Yeah. So in terms of managing it, um, the there's two main ways that you can get rid of heat. Um, radiation is one of the ways, but it's so small that it's really not worth considering for people. Um, it's important for really high temperature objects, and that's actually how they do heat transfer on the space cool. station and in space, because you can't rely on anything else. It has to be radiation. 
Um, so yeah, very cool. Um, so yeah, that promise. aside, um, <laughs> and no more cool jokes, I promise. <laughs> Uh, so that aside, you also have convection and conduction that uh, that can actually remove heat. So convection is when you have airflow or some kind of fluid flow traveling over a surface, and conduction is just essentially the molecules bouncing into something that's traveling. The, the molecules are just moving slower. So heat is actually like the actual physics definition is um, basically the average kinetic energy of the molecules in an object. So if they're moving really fast, they just bump into other ones. And that's why heat transfers and spreads. Uh, and that's why hot things tend to get cooler because all the kinetic energy of the molecules is kind of balancing out and equalizing. Um, so yeah, the, the conduction example, um, there's not really a lot of conduction that goes on when you're getting heat transfer from riding or from running anywhere. Um, and that's because you're not really touching anything aside from your bike and your bike's usually at the same temperature as you. So, or at least close to the temperature that you're holding on. So it's not something I'd rely on. So really convection is the interesting one here. And that's, that's what I'm going to focus on. So, uh, convection, most people are familiar with a fan, <laughs> I would hope. Uh, and it feels cooler when you have a fan on you. So, um, in a, in the winter, you get a drafty house and you get these little air currents and you feel uncomfortably cool. Um, likewise in the summer, if you have no, no airflow over you, you'll, you'll feel quite warm. And that's just because convection is a really effective way at removing heat. Okay. I was going to ask if you could give us some examples at, uh, maybe a couple of different, uh, ambient temperatures and, and air velocities of how much convection can actually, uh, help a cyclist. You read my mind. It's like we're reading from the same notes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> no one will figure it out. No. Uh, yeah, so there's a couple examples that I've prepared here, uh, taking all the mystery out of show business, uh, because I can't do these calculations on my own. And I <laughs> just recently, I remember hearing on the Trainer Road podcast, the rule is don't do math on the air, because <laughs> you will be wrong. <laughs> That's guaranteed. good advice. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I did a couple examples here and the first one, which is pretty warm conditions. So 30 degrees Celsius, like that's getting into a pretty warm day where you're not really going to want to go out and run a marathon. Uh, people do it, but it's not something you would feel overly inclined to do, I'd say. Yep. Uh, so 30 degrees Celsius, uh, we'll use the starting example of no wind. Um, and there, when we're talking about convection, usually we're talking about wind or airflow over you. Um, but there's something called natural convection where essentially you're heating up the air next to your body. Uh, and as it heats up, the density decreases. So it tends to be pushed upwards and replaced by cooler air. So that's natural convection. The hotter an object is, the more heat transfer is driven by that, blah, blah, blah. So all you're really interested in at this point is how much heat transfer occurs from that. And it would only be about 40 watts which is really not all that much. And it's why if you're training indoors um, and you don't have a fan on you, it you get hot really quickly. And man, it's, it's crazy when I start exercising on the bike, like I have to turn a fan on or else I'm just covered in sweat in less than five minutes. Um, but I don't want to give away any secrets here. The sweat will come later. Um, so starting off with our example, so natural convection only, you gain about 40 watts of heat transfer. So our 10 minute baseline, you'd only get yourself about 30 seconds of leeway before you overheat. So 10 and a half minutes. So Just really, peanuts it's, really. Yeah. yeah, it's not really making a significant difference. Um, and as we'll see, this is, this seems like nothing compared to some of the other heat transfer mechanisms. If we have a really strong fan or a wind going over your body, uh, 30 degrees Celsius, so 45 kilometer an hour wind for this example, you now get, instead of 40 watts, you get almost 10 times as much heat transfer. So you get 340 watts out of that, um, which actually, this does move the needle on your time to exhaustion. So you're now up to about 15 minutes, which is 50% longer. So if you can exercise for 50% longer in the heat, that's pretty substantial. Um, so definitely a good start. Now, how significant is this in the overall scheme of things? Uh, looking at what happens if we have a colder air temperature. So if you've got a larger temperature difference between your body temperature or your skin temperature more specifically and the ambient air, uh, with no wind, 
um, you're basically you're you're going to have an extra minute that you're adding on top of the 30 degrees Celsius before you get to exhaustion. So 11 and a half minutes for exhaustion, uh, and that would work out to uh, it'd be around 120, 130 watts of uh, heat transfer you'd be getting. So it's it is starting to it's starting to become more significant. So that's why if you're exercising in a cold garage, for example, when it's maybe five degrees or seven degrees Celsius, you can actually go a lot longer. And that's because the total heat transfer is proportional to the difference in temperature between your skin and the ambient air. Now, if it's 20 degrees Celsius and you've got a fan on yourself, um, or you're traveling at 45 kilometers an hour, the time to exhaustion or the time to overheating is now two hours. So we've gone from 11 and a half minutes to two hours, uh, which is basically almost at a balance between the heat transfer not ever being a problem. And that's why you can go out on a 20 degree day and it never really feels like you're overheating. Um, provided you can, uh, you can ride at 45 kilometers an hour, but then that's also <laughs> provided you're, you're, you're holding 300 Watts for two hours. So if you can hold 300 Watts for two hours, then, you know, uh, that kudos. Yep. I wish I was you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is, uh, unfortunately beyond my capabilities, but there are people out there who can do that. Uh, but you're starting to get 100%. into pretty, pretty elite company by that point, I'd say. Yeah. Some uh, rarefied air to be sure. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, that, that puts into perspective what happens with, um, with normal temperatures that you're exercising. Uh, right. and, and if we were, if we were, if we were kind of gazelles or dogs, um, I think that conversation would end there, but, uh, humans have developed, uh, a really amazing, um, adaptation to, operating in the heat. And if you've ever, you know, if you've ever read any uh, evolutionary biology or anything like that, or, or even that, the Born to Run, McDougall's Born to Run book, um, the, all those folks talk about how the, the ability of humans to sweat is really a key adaptation to operating in, uh, in hot environments and being able to do so for a long time. And uh, sweat, as I'm going to bug Andrew to give us some good numbers on, is actually probably the most the mo the the largest driver of uh, of emptying our bucket um, of uh, of all the other ones available. Absolutely. Uh, so this is the magic of heat transfer, and this is where things get really neat. Uh, but the amount of <laughs> I can't believe you just used the the, the phrase "the magic of heat transfer." And <laughs> yes, welcome to my world. This is what excites me. <laughs> no, I, I I like it too. I just I just think it's um, yeah, it's it's not something that's uh, that's heard often. I'm I'm glad I can bring that kind of excitement. <laughs> so now that we've probably lost ninety percent of the people listening to this, <laughs> uh, yeah. So evaporative heat transfer it's really really effective at heat transfer. So the the amount of energy contained in um, in phase changes is huge. So phase change could be going from solid to a liquid or a liquid to a gas. There's so much heat transfer available, basically, is what I'm saying. If you have two liters per hour of sweat, which is, that's a lot of sweat. Um, I did a heat transfer test uh, a couple months ago, and I think <laughs> in 45 minutes, I did 1.9 liters, but that was um, a pretty, pretty intense uh, circumstances for that. So that one was extreme. So yeah, I'm I'm around the two liters per hour, but if you get 100% evaporation of that, you're actually now getting over 1,200 watts of heat transfer, which would more than balance out your um, your heat generation. So without any convective heat transfer, just getting the evaporative heat transfer, you can now infinitely exercise essentially. So you were talking about Andrew. You were talking about 1,200 watts of uh, if you're over over two liters. So um, that's two liters per hour. Yep, two liters per hour of of sweat, and 100% of that is evaporated. Now, when you get into really humid conditions, the actual amount of evaporation decreases. So basically, the air it already has enough water, and it can't get rid of everything. And that's when you have sweat running down your body, and that's kind of the end of a hot race where you've just sweated so much that. Uh, you know, everything's soaked. So that's, that's where, that's where you have to consider a decrease to this contribution to heat transfer. For sure. Yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to get a hundred percent evaporation. And if you're, you know, if you've ever been in your basement and you're, you know, you, there are puddles of sweat on the floor, that's, that sweat isn't doing you much good. You're just losing water. You're not actually, um, it's not helping you cool off. Yep. And it's the same reason that, um, when you turn on a fan, um, 
you don't have that puddle. It's not because you're not sweating. Uh, you probably are sweating nearly as much, but it's just evaporating quickly because you're actually driving more airflow over it. Does mass uh, transfer excite you as much as heat transfer, Andrew? You know, the interesting thing, <laughs> I can almost say that without laughing. The interesting thing is there's actually a lot of the same equations that govern the two. It's all based on either concentration or temperature differentials and, and gradients. Uh, yep. But I'll leave it there. Uh, yes, maybe we can do a bonus do episode for where the engineers can listen. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, listen, that's, that's a great, I'd like to call that an intro, but that's much more than an intro. That's a pretty deep dive. So the kind of the key takeaways from that, if I can summarize, is that um, the primary driver of, uh, of you know, filling the bucket is you working hard, and the harder you work, the more you've, the, the faster that bucket fills up. Um, keeping in mind that we're only about twenty to twenty-five percent efficient. Uh, you do get some radiative heat transfer, especially on sunny days. Um, Andrew, do you have actually? I remember you seeing numbers that you sent me: um, sunny versus versus overcast. Can you just quickly touch on that? Yeah, you'd get about thirty percent of the total radiation on an overcast day. So. Um, yeah, basically, if you're getting 200 watts on a sunny day, you might get, uh, well, a third of that, 60 watts, right. uh, roughly, on on an overcast day. So it's that's why overcast yeah. days just feel so much more comfortable. They're not you don't feel nearly yeah. as much heat. So those are the two primary ways to fill the bucket and emptying the bucket. Primarily, is uh, the biggest the biggest factor is uh, evaporation and sweating, especially if uh, if the air is dry. And the the cool thing about it is that it works even if the ambient temperature is above your body temperature. So even in very very hot conditions, like in desert climates, um, sweating is incredibly effective. It's it's really the only way that you can you can shed heat at that point. Um, so I have a really quick point to add to this because I've true. already gone way too in depth with a lot of this, <laughs> but um, there's a, a really neat uh, piece of footage that I saw on one of the, I think it's one of the Planet Earth series, um, the BBC nature documentaries where there's in the outback, there's uh, kangaroos that would lick their forearms and licking their forearms, you get this um, large cooling area with evaporative heat transfer now and they actually use thermal imaging and they could see there was a significant decrease in the temperature now why the forearms well there's actually a lot of blood flow there so the blood is near the surface of the skin and it uh it actually transfers a lot of the heat out of the blood and then the blood itself goes back into your core where it picks up more heat and then can transfer it to the surface so that is purely evaporative and that's nature figuring out a way to deal with temperatures that are sometimes above your body temperature that's awesome yeah and i think i i don't know the physiology of kangaroos but i think i don't believe they sweat so that's um that's kind of like them figuring out how to sweat the same this sort of similarly yeah, why yeah, your, exactly. your dog pants when he or she is hot um because they're trying to they're getting that evaporative heat transfer out of their mouths if dogs start licking their forearms, then that's evolution in action. That's right. We're doomed. They're <laughs> learning from the kangaroos. Yes, that'll be global warming 2.0 right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that's great. So we will talk about some of the ways that we can uh, we can mitigate uh, the effects of heat. Uh, but before we jump into that, there's a couple of uh, really kind of interesting and reasonably recent developments on the um, the psychology of uh, of being hot when you're when you're training and racing and uh um this uh, this is a little bit of a divergence i won't spend too much time there but too much time here but there's a there's a theory out there that folks stop working hard um not when they hit their physiological limits but when they hit their psychological limits um and uh i'm a you know i do happen to believe that there's a lot of value in that in that line of thinking so famously samuela marcora out of uh um, I forget which university in the UK he, he does his teaching out of, but he's one of the, the figureheads in this movement um, where he talks about, you know, people stop when perception of effort exceeds, you know, their desire to go on or their willpower to go on. Um, and it seems like being hot has a role to play in that uh, in that interplay. There was uh, there were recently some interesting studies done where they have um, they've put folks in uh, in warm rooms and have manipulated, for instance, the um, uh, the te the temperature on the wall. So in a in a room that's this was in Fahrenheit, and I should have converted them, and I didn't in advance. So my apologies. I think it was something like eighty nine Fahrenheit. Um, which off the top of my head is probably around like high 20s, maybe 28, 29 degrees Celsius. 
Um, I, I just broke the cardinal rule, Andrew. I did math in my head. <laughs> um, so we'll take that back. 89 Fahrenheit, I can tell you that that is the right number. But instead of, um, but but they manipulated the thermometer to read 79 Fahrenheit. Um, and folks actually lasted longer in this intervention group than in the control group that was looking at 89. So the folks that thought they were hotter, they performed less well than the, than the cohort that thought they were cool. Which is, you know, I think super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also done experiments where they've uh, they've attached a small heated pad um, to the to the upper back of the participants, and they only raised the temperature just a little bit, just above skin temperature or just above core temperature, let's say, um, to 104 Fahrenheit in this case. Um, not the, and the effect wasn't enough to actually make any physiological difference. So it didn't um, it didn't elevate core temperature. It didn't elevate sweat rate or heart rate. Uh, but what it did do was it elevated perceived effort. And um, accordingly, the the performance on the time to exhaustion tests during that uh, experiment with the heat pad, the people with the heat pad compared to the, the heat pad being turned off, the, the folks with the heat pad turned on to 104 Fahrenheit performed significantly worse. So there was no physiological change, but the psychological component of feeling hot uh, cause these people to perform more poorly than their than their counterparts in the control group. So there's something to be said about that psychological impact of of feeling hot. And I think a great example would be probably everyone's been in this position, but where you feel like you can't go any further or any faster, and you see the finish line, and it's 100 meters away, and you can put a burst of speed out. Yep. Um, and, you know, if you can't see the finish line and you're in the middle of the race, you'd never be able to do that. But it's just your your brain realizing that I don't have to, to throttle back anymore. Absolutely. And then the specific example of, uh, of heat, if you've ever run a, on a really sunny day um, or, or cycled, but usually it's, it's running that's the, that's the hardest. Um, and it's, it's sunny and it's hot and you're uncomfortable and you know, you're, you're feeling pretty, pretty lousy and then you run into some shade. So similar to Andrew's example of the finish line, which is a really, you know, it's a really great classic example. But if you run into shade, um, if you think about what's going on on the inside – Nothing has changed in in the you know ten seconds, five seconds that you've been in that shade. Physiologically, your body temperature hasn't changed, your heart rate hasn't changed. Nothing physiologically has changed, but you feel a lot cooler because you've now removed that solar heating that uh, you know up to two hundred watts that we that Andrew talked about, and you feel a lot better. You feel so much better, and the, the perception of effort drops, and you're able to either pick up the pace or feel better about the pace that you're holding. Um, so that's another good example of it. Yeah. And from my own personal experience too, I remember a race that I did, it's probably two years ago. Uh, it was around 32 to 35 Celsius during the race. It was just miserably hot. It was the Welland long course triathlon. I, I have and, such a, such a battle with that race every time I do it. It's always like that. It's always that hot. And it's always one of the first races in the year too, yep. but it just, for whatever reason, they pick the weekend that ends up being the hottest weekend in June. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was, it, this was amazing. And this was kind of what really got me interested in heat transfer for athletes. But I was running along and they'd have um, an aid station with ice. And I would put ice down my jersey and uh, it would, um, aside from the pieces that migrated down a little too far, <laughs> um, it was uh, it was actually noticeable. My pace went up considerably. I was, I was struggling. Like I was doing, I don't know, close to six minutes a kilometer, um, barely picking up my feet, it felt like, and I was just miserable. And then I put the ice down my shirt and then it, uh, I picked up, I don't know, over a minute per kilometer pace. So, yeah. and that was... Now that might've actually been impacting my core body temperature at that point, but it was also very quick reaction. So psychologically I had this cool source on my body that just felt like relief in my brain all of a sudden said, Hey, you can go faster. You can go harder. You're not going to die. And, and I did go faster and it was, and after the race, I kind of reflected on that and said, there's something here. This is really interesting. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think that was probably more psychological. I doubt that that had, you know, probably wasn't fast enough to make any, you know, mm-hmm. any body uh, sort of body core temperature difference. Um, so maybe this is a good time, Andrew, to talk about some interventions, some some things that we can do to um, to cope with the with the heat better because. Uh, um, you know, that's the, the nature of our sport. It's a summer sport and we often have to contend with temperatures higher than what we would like. So is there anything that you want to talk about from the uh, dealing with it perspective? 
Well, I think there's there's a couple things that seem pretty obvious, but it's it's worth mentioning. So if you take in cool drinks, um, that you're you're essentially just bringing something into your body. So the the drink has to in order to reach thermal equilibrium where everything's the same temperature. Uh, your body temperature goes down and the, the drink temperature goes up until it's all balanced. So the more you drink and the colder it is, the more you're impacting your core temperature. Uh, likewise, I mentioned the impact of phase change and how it's a huge uh, way to, to store heat. And if you have a slushy drink, um, if you can imagine those 7-Eleven or gas station um, slush drinks, if you have one of those, one liter of ice, essentially, or one liter of slush drink can decrease your core body temperature for someone my size by around a degree and a half Celsius. Holy, so that's a lot. It's Yeah. Now, at the same time, imagine the discomfort of drinking one liter of ice yeah, and the brain enough. freeze that goes along with that. You don't have, you don't have to chug it, Andrew. You, can, you, can, you just pace yourself. <laughs> I thought you had to do everything quickly. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, aside from the difficulty of getting it in, but that's huge change. Like it's um, a degree and a half can take you basically from the brink of heat stroke down to a normal body temperature. Uh, so a lot of athletes use this and, oh, this reminds me of what we mentioned we'd talk about later. Uh, a lot of athletes use this to bring their core temperature down or at least buffer their core temperature before a hot race. So what I wanted to mention before that I said we'd come back to was this study that was done for the World Cycling Championships in Qatar. I think it was 2016 that this was done. And they had instrumented a bunch of uh, these pro cyclists and they found that um, it was actually for highly trained cyclists. They had measured core body temperatures of 41 and a half Celsius, which is far higher than anything that physiologists ever thought was possible. So it shows that hmm. if your body is trained uh, and if you're in the right shape and in the right psychological condition, you can push yourself way past the limit of what is traditionally a safe limit. I'm not recommending this because this is an extreme circumstance and they had medical crews on hand. Um, but yeah, it was it was very high temperatures recorded. The one notable exception was, I think, the men's team tri time trial for one of the countries. I can't remember which team it was now, but they had taken slushy drinks before the race and their core temperatures were about a degree and a half to two degrees cooler than any of their competitors. Um, so yeah, huge impact. Which makes and, perfect sense, right? Like if you're starting yeah, at a lower, yeah. you know, a lower core, core body temperature. Now there might be some physiological effects of starting at a colder, colder core, core temperature. But um, if you're in a hot race, I think that those are probably worth, uh, that cost is probably worth paying. Yeah, I 100% agree. And and really, that's the best way to get heat transfer is phase change. So if you can take ice, if you can uh, take cold drinks, like that's that's how you keep yourself cool. So never pass up an aid station on a hot day. Very good advice. Um, so on the on the subject of uh, of uh, fluid intake, um, this is we, we should do a we should do a show on nutrition and hydration. I think, but uh, it's worth mentioning here that obviously, if you're you know, we talked about twelve hundred watts at um, of uh, evaporative cooling at two liters per hour. So now you start doing the math. If you're doing a long course race, especially, how much fluid you're losing if you are close to that you know, two liters an hour, even if you're at a liter an hour, you know, if you're doing a 12 hour Ironman race, that starts to add up. Okay. Maybe we can chop off the first hour for the swim, but well, you actually do sweat in the swim you do. quite a you're bit. You're absolutely right. You do sweat in the swim. So point taken. So 12 hours, <laughs> even at a liter an hour, that's, that's a lot of fluid loss. Um, and obviously, you know, you're going to end up a little bit dehydrated by the end and that's normal. Um, but you, you have to replace, the vast majority of that fluid. Um, and so this, this gets into the point of like, what's the most, what's the optimal drink in terms of, in terms of its osmolality. And that's the, the concentration of solutes in that water in order to get water into your bloodstream. So there've been folks um, like, uh, like the people who make scratch and the people who make osmo is obviously a correlation between osmo and osmolality. Um, the that 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 claim that the most the important function of the fluid that you take in isn't to give you fuel and it isn't to give you electrolytes, but it's to get water back into your into your bloodstream essentially into you know out of the gut and into your system. And um, on a hot day, I would agree with them. With you know, I would agree with them very very much. So generally speaking, and again, we'll probably do a little bit more on it on another day. Uh, 
hypotonic drinks. So these are drinks that are that have an osmolality, so the concentration of solutes of salt and sugar in our case, in the in the in the drink, are lower than uh, serum, so blood uh, osmolality. So generally, things like scratch is really good at that. So a proper serving of scratch. Um, I'm, I'm going to plug a product that I use, uh, and, and that's Tailwind. So a single serving of Tailwind is pretty close to that. Um, a single scoop. Um, so the where the where the idea is to get water into the bloodstream as quickly as possible because the the danger of having too much um, concentration of uh, sodium or other electrolytes and sugar in the fluid that you drink is then through osmosis you actually end up pulling water from the blood into your gut. So this does two things. It actually dehydrates you, which is dehydrates you further, which is certainly not what you want, but it also causes quite a bit of GI distress, right? Because um, extra extra fluid in the in the intestines and in the gut, that's what kind of gives you the, uh, the, the urgent need to go. So uh, osmolality, especially on hot days, especially on longer races of your of your drinks is um, super important. Yeah, those are really interesting points. And um, just for the record, and <laughs> to make sure I know what you're talking about, uh, just refreshing, osmosis is the basically the transfer of water across a membrane from a higher concentration to a lower concentration. Yeah, is that- yeah, pretty much. So it's oh. it's the movement. Yeah, it's the movement of water across a semi or any kind of solvent across a semi permeable membrane from a yeah exactly from a higher concentration or lower so if the higher concentration happens to be happens to be in your gut in order to you know establish equilibrium and dilute that higher concentration you actually get water moving from outside the gut from your blood into the gut in order to establish that equilibrium and that there we problems. go yep um, a couple of other things we should talk about uh, clothing choice, and we talked about the color of your clothing being important um, for managing uh, radiative heat transfer. Also, the wicking properties of your clothing are super important, and I think most uh, modern sport fabrics are, are really good at doing this already. But um, sweat obviously happens, you know, sweat comes through the pores in your skin, and sweat on your skin, if your skin is hidden behind a layer of clothing, is not any good to you. So you need to get that sweat to the you know out to the environment so that it has the the opportunity to evaporate so wicking fabrics are um, incredibly incredibly important and this is actually more of a factor for um, colder weather training when you've got multiple layers because like i said mo- most modern uh, fabrics are really good at moving that moving the moisture from the skin to the outside layer but um, you know if you're if you're in a, if you're in hot conditions that's why that technical polyester uh, piece of kit is uh, is your friend one other important point here is that uh, even in hot conditions it's it's not obvious but your body actually sweats differently or at different rates from different surfaces so the wicking can help spread and more evenly distribute the sweat so that now all of your skin is working efficiently at transferring heat instead of just portions that tend to sweat more. Right. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great point. Um, there is uh, we should touch on heat acclimation training. Um, again, this is probably worth another, another episode with an expert of which I am not, <laughs> but generally speaking, the, um, um, the most, <laughs> the most basic way to heat acclimatize is to be in the heat. Which is why, and this is, I I have this conversation with athletes all the time who come to me and say like, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a long course race in somewhere hot in April or in May. And I tell them that you're going to have a tough time (laughs) because you're coming from a cold climate of, uh, you know, even if our winter and spring are normal, it's still cold. Um, and then you go down somewhere that's 20 degrees or 30 degrees warmer than what you're used to and expect to perform at the same, at the same capacity that just doesn't happen. Um, classic example is Chattanooga just took place a couple weekends ago. Uh, we had a pretty large contingent uh, from Toronto going folks that I know. Um, and it, it was 32 degrees cause that's what Chattanooga, Tennessee is all about in May sometimes. Um, and it was, uh, it was a tough go for, for a lot of people, for a lot of our Canadian athletes down there who are not trained in that, in that, in those conditions. So one of the interesting things, and this was an older study and I can't remember who it was by, but um, you can actually get a lot of the effects of that blood plasma volume increase by not doing much, by just hanging out in the heat. So if you're in a, if you're in a cold climate, one of the things that folks recommend is uh, 
is spending a continuous, um, so uh, consistently spending some time in a hot environment like a sauna. So this is why saunas and, and hot tubs are so popular with athletes who are training to do a, a hot weather race. So in the in the period, let's say you know one week to two weeks before your event, um, spending uh, I think I think the study was something like sixty minutes. Uh, of uh, of being in this hot condition continuously for seven days showed um, measurable increases in blood plasma volume, which is again the number one um, uh, the number one adaptation to hot weather, and that was um, so that obviously was very useful for folks who were going to be training who were going to be performing in a, an environment hotter than what they were training in. So I think I'm going to go home and tell my wife that uh, in order to prepare for my next hot Ironman, we should get a sauna. I think that's an I think that's an excellent thing to do. We'll that's see a, how that goes. Um there's a couple of other like really I they don't really maybe belong here but there's some really interesting training um uh, hacks if I don't like that word training things you can do when it's hot. Um so one of the one of the, you know so Andrew and I were talking about how you you become limited by the accumulation of heat in your you know in your heat bucket when you're training or racing in the heat. But one of the nice things about this is if you are um, if you're an athlete who is centrally limited. So by that I mean you're you know you've got maybe very well developed uh, muscular musculature system, but your cardio respiratory system is the is the weak link. One of the nice things you can do is by training in the heat, you can actually train not as hard physically. So not have the same pace, not hold the same power, but still get a lot of the the stress on the central system, again, the cardiorespiratory system, as you would if you were working much harder. So you get less uh, peripheral, that's muscular, and to some extent neuromuscular strain, and more um, metabolic and uh, and cardiorespiratory strain in in hot weather. So this is one nice thing. And the other nice thing is if you're, let's say if you're an injured athlete or an athlete coming off of injury, Probably if you're an injured athlete, you shouldn't be training much. But if you're coming off of injury and you're you, you're trying to be mindful of straining your injured muscle or tendon or bone, training in the heat can give you some of the same training stimulus, training stress, again, for that cardiorespiratory system without as much stress on that uh, on that affected, um, you know, uh, affected tissue. Hmm. So you can, you know, let's say if I'm, I'm going to make up some numbers, if normally like you do your endurance run at, you know, five flat, um, on a cool day and, and, but now you're hurt and maybe the, the mechanical stresses of five flat are a little bit too much. So five flat, I mean, five minutes per kilometer. Um, but if you go in the middle of the day when it's hot and it's sunny and you're running five thirty, five forty-five. 45, you could be getting the same kind of central stress without nearly as much mechanical stress on the um, on whatever is injured. Hmm, that's that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's just it's it's kind of like a little thing you can try and do if you're if you find yourself in that situation. All right, so we have covered a ton today, and for probably the one we or have. two listeners <laughs> that are still left <laughs> or fell asleep with this still playing. Um, one thing I'll say that maybe I'll uh, I'll give you the opportunity, Andrew. I know that uh, you, you just to tease out some stuff that you may have in the pipeline, and I don't, you know, I certainly don't want you to leak anything that you're <laughs> uncomfortable leaking. But even if you just want to say that you're, you know, you're cooking something up. But um, last time I talked to Andrew about this stuff, he had some interesting uh, interesting projects in the in the pipeline. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, I, I had alluded to this a little bit, actually. Um, we did a heat study looking at localized cooling and just to see kind of the the effects on endurance uh, events. So it was a 45-minute time trial, miserable conditions. It was the longest 45 minutes of my life. Um, and it was exercising at 75% FTP, um, and it was... 31 degrees Celsius and 70% humidity and no convection. And we talked earlier about how the convection was effective. So with the localized cooling, um, even though it was only removing around 40 watts from me, uh, it actually had a really significant impact on the final final conditions I was under. So my core body temperature went from, um, I think the the uncooled uh, control study, I was up to 39 and a half degrees, which was actually the safety cutoff. And I started at around 140 beats per minute and I was up to 180, uh, which is oh, wow. pretty close to my maximum heart rate. 
Um, and we, uh, yeah, I was about to get pulled out for the uncooled study because um, the criteria was three minutes above this and then you're done. Uh, I went two and a half minutes when the study ended. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, not fun, but when we had the cooled test, so there was a few things that happened. First of all, my heart rate was eight beats per minute lower. Uh, and my core body temperature was half a degree Celsius lower. Um, so that's actually a 25% reduction in the, the temperature increase, which is actually pretty significant. Um, but also we were talking about the psychological effects and the rate of perceived exertion was lower as well by having this localized cooling. So really there were phys physiological impacts as well as psychological impacts by having localized cooling. So uh, we are looking at options for this, I'll say. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I thought that, you know, it's, it's always fun to kind of say that there's something in the pipeline. Yeah, so. no, it's something I'm, I'm very excited about. And I think it's, uh, it's an area that needs to be looked at. So, um, for sure. Yeah. We've, we've got some secret weapons that, uh, may or may not make a debut at Kona this year. Oh yeah. There you go. Okay. Pay attention. So even more, yeah. Even more things to look out for. There you go. Um, Andrew, do you have anything to plug anything that, uh, you want our listeners to know about what's going on with you or with stack or with, um, you know, four I. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're in the process of moving. Um, as I'm recording this, um, we've got the other guys here who are, waiting for me to finish off the recording so they can start making noise and continue packing. Either that or they've gone home and just left everything for me to pack. Um, so that might be the fair yeah, thing. We're in the process of moving out west. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we do have a 50% off sale on the Halcyon going on right now. So anyone who hasn't picked that up, uh, it's a good time to, to get a really inexpensive smart trainer. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my plug for now. I don't want to be too, uh, commercial about this whole thing. I'd like to keep the, <laughs> the focus on the technology rather than anything else. Sounds good. Yeah. And, uh, you can follow me at, uh, X3 training. I'm on Facebook and, uh, Instagram and, uh, X3 training.com is the website. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, send us a note. And uh, as always, we're looking for listener questions too. So if you've got something that you're, uh, you think that one of us might be able to answer or one of the folks that we're going to be bringing on might be able to answer, then uh, send either Andrew or myself a note on any one of our channels and uh, we'll be happy to get you a response. All right. So why don't we wrap it up here then? Sounds good, Andrew. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Yep. Yep. Uh, the nerd out con will continue in about a week <laughs> or so. 